it's getting to a businessman can't expect no return from a fixed fee. Now, if you can't trust a fix, what can you trust? For a good return, you gotta go betting on chance. And then, you're back with anarchy. Right back in the jungle. That's why ethics is important. What separates us from the uh, animals, the uh, beasts of burden, beasts of prey, ethics. Whereas uh, Bernie Birnbaum is a horse of a different color, ethics-wise. As in, he ain't got any. Hello, listening people. Hello. You're listening to Spit and Polish Presents Pictures Powwow. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Swinski. And I am one of your hosts, Bartek. Indeed. Whose and name sounds like how it's spelled. Exactly. Three stars. Yes. So, Bartek, <laughs> we are Spit and Polish, likingly, because we're always spitting. And we both happen to be Polish. And we're presenting our show, Pictures Powwow. Yes. It's a lot of peas happening now. Polish. Polish. Pow. That's the second. The second word in the Polish national anthem begins with a P. What is it? Polska. Oh, for Poland, of course. Yes. Imagine if it was for <laughs> Germany. <laughs> like in our national anthem, we never forget an enemy. Um, so, Bartek, we're doing Pictures Powwow, a show in which we talk about a movie that was recommended, whether it be by us or the listening people. This week it was from one of us. Mm-hmm. Who was it from? Me or you? Um. Well, the thing is, the answer is you, but not the you you said. Um. <sighs> The you from my perspective. Yeah, the you from your perspective. Which would be, for you it's me, but not Mm. me, it's you. It's Ryan Slowinski. And I picked the 1990 film directed and written by the Coens, the Mm -hmm. Coen brothers. uh, You're showing me up by picking an earlier film than mine. Oh, I should have picked like (laughs) one from 1910. (laughs) And then you can't outdo it. So I picked Miller's Crossing, the Mm. Coen brothers classic, their third film. Yes. Which is an impressive feat for a third film. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their first film being, I think, Blood Simple. Uh, And then Raising Arizona? I can't remember. But I think this is their third film. Um, And it's their... Is this third directed or third written or what? They usually write and direct their own things. Mm. This is the last, one of the last films, I think, or one of the few films that they didn't edit either. Okay. They usually edit their own films now. They usually got everything in their power and in, in, in charge. Like, they, you know, that's kind of thing. So... This is the Coen Brothers film, Miller's Crossing. If you have not seen this film, if you have not heard about this film, do check it out. We're going to be discussing this in depth and full spoilers. And of course, recommend the film, recommend watching it. It is a gorgeous film to look at and it's really deep. It's a Coen Brothers movie, people. You know it's going to be good, even if it is divisive. Coen Brothers are usually pretty divisive, you know, usually with their bittersweet endings or non-endings. Spoiler alert, this movie does have an ending, mm-hmm. unlike a lot of Coen Brothers movies that just kind of end literally by the character going, well, I guess this was all pointless, and then it ends. This movie actually has character arcs and developments, not saying that other Coen Brothers movies don't, they're just usually more subdued. Like, they use, like, Tommy Lee Jones saying, and then I woke up, and then it ends. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, um, No Country for Old Men I'm referencing. Uh, this movie does have dreams, or mentioning of dreams as well. The Coen brothers have a lot of things going on. Recommend Miller's Crossing. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Come back and listen to us talk about it. Let's get into this movie. Bartek? Yes? You hadn't seen this movie before. No, I haven't. And when I looked up the Coen brothers filmography, I conclude now that this is the fourth film of theirs I've seen. So tell me the others. The others I have seen are The Big Lebowski. Ooh. 
uh, which um, our friend Reese lent me a DVD copy a couple of years John ago. John Goodman's best performance in his entire He's career. pretty damn good. Like, honestly, he didn't get an Oscar for that. Not even a nomination, because it was comedic performance. Mm-hmm. Stupid. Yep. Just, uh, just where are the Oscars heads at? A couple of years ago, I saw Hail Caesar in the cinemas. Oh, that was such a good it movie. It was fun. Like, it was a lighter movie for them. It was a throwaway, but it's still worth mm-hmm. chatting Tatum. Oh, he was great. Yep. <laughs> and the next two were By Your Own Admission films I've seen, Intolerable Cruelty and Miller's Crossing. Ah, so you've seen a full spectrum of... If anything, you've seen more of the comedic movies than the full serious movies, because Big yeah. Lebowski's comedic, Hail Caesar's comedic, Intolerable Cruelty is comedic, and this is not... Like, this is funny. All of yeah. the movies are... Funny, but this is the more dramatic movie. Yeah, so, this is one that IMDb didn't call a comedy. So, yeah. how was it for you seeing a more dramatic beat from the Coen brothers, who are known for being more dramatic directors with comedies still? Like Fargo is their most acclaimed, and that's still a very funny movie. Yeah, this this was one film where I was glad that I was I was holding my my judgment until I saw the full thing. Because mm. watching it, you know, in real time, I was like. Am I missing things? Am I supposed to know everything that's going on? And then by the end, I could look back over the whole journey and be like, okay, I, I get what happened now. Yes. Still have questions, but that's intentional. Yes, and yeah. hopefully I can answer them, maybe. I don't know. Sometimes even I, when I was watching it, going, oh, yeah, it was Mink. <laughs> like, <laughs> and stuff honestly, like that. Honestly, even if you don't have answers, I'm okay with that. But if we can answer them, sure. Let's so go I'll go through a quick rundown of what this movie, in brief, break it down to basic elements, what it's about. Mm -hmm. It's a simple movie when you break it down to its basic elements. It's basically uh, a a 1920s Prohibition-era gangster movie on that basic level, if you broke it down to that basic genre, about Tom Reagan, who is the right-hand man, the man behind the man who whispers in his ear to the leader of the Irish mob, Leo, and they are running this city that we don't really get to know what it is, except for there's maybe one or two references that it may be New York, but we yeah. never get a solid, like, here's a Statue of Liberty. Like, isn't there a line that indicates it's at least not New Jersey or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I always thought of Chicago in my brain, but, like, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, mm. you know, unknown 1920s era, weird American city, you know, just an American city, and it's a uh, gangland war is breaking out because Leo refuses to give up uh, a, a certain individual who is the brother of a woman he is oh, hoping to marry. Yeah. And it causes a rift between the the sanctity, the purity of the city, like the, the understanding of the mob and the law, and also it causes a rift between Tom and Leo, and Tom and everyone. <laughs> because Tom is the only guy who really sees it for what it is. Yeah. Except for he's not the only one. Basically everyone but Leo and Verna sees the situation <laughs> for what it is. But Tom, he's a loyal guy to the end. Except for Izzy. <laughs> that's the big question, yeah. I read a thing online that's like, in the end, Tom was doing it all for Leo, but I'm like, well, his dialogue at the end, I don't know. If that's, that's exactly yeah. right. This <laughs> is one of those movies where our main character's not even sure of why he does what he does, Seems seemingly. There are lines of dialogue where he says it like, did I though? And you're like, Gabriel Byrne deserves mm. an Oscar for this, and yet didn't get one. <laughs> he and had a recurring line throughout the film. I'll, I'll, I'll think about it, I think it was. Yeah, yeah or, or oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's basically, when you break it down, this is a movie in which a woman, a dame, a twist, um, f- uh, is in a relationship with a powerful gangster, and it destroys everything. 
that that's basically what you break it down to. It's it was the I guess yeah the cause of everything. And there's down. twists and turns like the yeah the the status quo is broken because of a single dame, which is a classic old school noir gangster thriller of the 1930s and 40s. That is like typical great and my, my, I might must I say. Marsha Gay uh, Harden did a brilliant job as Verna. She looks exactly right for the type of femme fatale she's supposed to be. Like, she looks like the type of person who takes no shit from nobody. Mm. And, but still very feminine and still very, like... But, like, usually when you think of femme fatales, sometimes you think of, like, the blonde hair, like, ditzy seductress. But, but there's also those ones that are, like, the more brunette brutish kind of like yeah i use my femininity for my own means and they're not even that subtle about it <laughs> and that's what verna is so bartek having not seen this movie and now having you know watched it what did you actually think did you enjoy it did you like it what did you feel i i did enjoy it i i, I was struggling to to keep up with it at times but like i said by the end i caught up on everything um yeah, it, it just raises a lot of questions, and I've read in many different parts on the internet that this is a film that, and everyone uses this term, begs repeat viewing. Yeah. And I'm talking here on this podcast as someone who's only seen it the one time, mm -hmm. so we've got different perspectives, because if, if I'm not mistaken, Ryan, this is like your, what, 10th favourite Coen Brothers film? <laughs> no, it's my favourite one. It's number one. It's number one. So I'm guessing you've seen it at least more than once. Oh, I've seen it like a dozen or so times. <laughs> there yeah. you go. Like, my thing with it is, I've seen pretty much all of their filmography there's a few i haven't seen i haven't seen like one or two of their more recent ones or i haven't seen like the man who wasn't there and stuff like that but for me the coen brothers do this really great blend of that kind of uh real dr dead serious slow methodical and also upbeat whimsy mm. at the same time like people say movies are slow right and usually when people say movies are slow they mean they're plotting and they're aimless and you don't know where they're going. They've got a derogatory twist to the word slow, yeah. The, when you say a Coen Brothers movie is slow, that doesn't apply. Every time they have a slow... Like, this is a slow-paced movie, yet mm -hmm. it feels like it's just gone like that. Because a Coen Brothers movie is so well-structured. Like, every beat and moment of pacing, you know every single shot, every single moment is deliberate and there, there's a reason to it. Even in their movies where they end with no uh, seemingly no ending, there's still like a reason to their movies. You know, I've had arguments with people where it's like those movies are about nothingness. I'm like, no, no, no. They're using the idea that nothing that it's about nothingness to actually say something. Mm. Like in, in Fargo, it all ends in violence, and it, it just ends with the main cop in bed with a husband, and they say good night and whatever. But that movie is about like, oh. We did all of this violence, all this killing, all of this for what? Money? That's pointless. Now, that is pointless. And that's the message, right? This movie, it has a lot of things like that going on. Like, at the end of the movie, you know, you just end with Gabriel Byrne putting on a hat. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, this movie's about hats. Did you pick up on the hats, Bartek? <laughs> is it about putting on hats? <laughs> it's about it's about running after hats or not running after hats. No, that'd be foolish, Ryan. I, don't get me started. That's a whole thing. <laughs> I, I'll get into the hats. But... Yeah, this movie is my favourite because it blends everything I liked about the Coens. Their slow, methodical nature, their humour, their their pathos, their their metaphors and imageries, the well-defined characters. Every single person in this movie 
down to the smallest individual gives a career best performance. Good like, job, Oleg Krupa. <laughs> you, you, we know from Stardust. And I mentioned when we did Stardust on the mystery box that he's in my favorite, favorite Coen Brothers movie. I remember, Crossing. I remember that you said he's in my favorite something. Then when I saw him in this, I'm like, oh, Ryan must have mentioned this film when he talked about that. <laughs> so, Bartek, this film has a lot of things going on. Mm-hmm. But um, this this is an interesting little movie. But um, let's delve deeper into into your perspective on it because you're fresh to this. Yes. So, what did you think of the characters and and the general thing that unfolds? Yeah, walking into it, I knew that it was a Coen Brothers film. So the two films that I immediately had on my mind were the two most recent at the time I've seen: Hail Caesar and Intolerable, uh, Intolerable Cruelty. Cruelty. So no George Clooney in this must have really threw you for a loop. You're like, <laughs> what? what? Where is he? <laughs> well, he wasn't in Big Lebowski, but I actually forgot about that film when I was watching this. Hmm. Um, John Turturro was in Big Lebowski. <laughs> he was. He was Jesus. Jesus. Mm. They didn't call him Jesus, did they? No, just Jesus. Just Jesus. You don't fuck the Jesus. <laughs> um, so I was expecting, like, okay, I'm I'm expecting characters to appear and already seem to, uh, you know, have like the impression that they've already established their characters. That's how. That's the impression mm. I get of characters from these Coen Brothers films that I've seen. Like they already exist. In this they world. already exist. Like, oh, there's this character. He's fast talking. It's like, oh, yeah. I think I think I know what kind of character this is. They yeah. they wear their personality on their sleeves. Yeah. Um. And I and I was I guess to say that I was. Oh, what's that term? The. Joie de vivre. <laughs> what did he call George, it? Like? George de Vere, or whatever it was. Um, yeah, is that what they call it? George de Vere? George de Vere. No, the, the, the one where, you, the, the term where you're, you've broken the illusion that it's fiction. Oh. Yeah, breaking the fourth wall kind of thing. Or? Yeah, 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 the, the specific term. Um, breaking, oh God, this I, is such a common term. Either way. Ba- basically, I was aware of the fact that like, okay, they're going to be characterised like this, so is this going to take me out of the film? Mm. But I think it still worked. It still worked, and yeah, I, w- I was just aware of it throughout the whole thing. Is the is the thing? So yeah, I, f- I felt like maybe that was holding me back. Okay, but it was all well done. So you saw the artifice. I guess, the... like it, it, things that I was expecting were happening. Okay, okay. In, yeah. in terms of characterization and stuff like that. But the thing is, it was done well, so it's not like yeah. it's a negative. Well, see, for me, I, I totally agree with everything you're saying, except for Tom, right? He's the exception to this, because a main character in a movie, even noir movies like yeah. your Sam Spades and whatnot, are more likable than Tom Reagan. On paper, Tom Reagan, when you think about, like, think of what he did in the movie on paper, forget Gabriel Byrne's performance, but on paper... He is one of the most unlikable, <laughs> assholeish characters that belongs in a Rockstar game. <laughs> That's true, yes. Uh, and the term I was thinking of was suspension of disbelief. Suspension of disbelief. Yeah. But Gabriel Byrne is one of those actors that he just says everything with his face. Like those eyes. Mm. You don't even need Gabriel Byrne to say lines of dialogue. I read a comment somewhere that was like, does he even sleep in this film? And it's like, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> yeah, he's constantly being... I think he does, because... Oh, no, yeah. You see him in bed. We but... see him sitting in bed smoking all the time. She's like, have you gone to sleep? He's like, no. <laughs> um, but that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I agree. The rest of them, there's an artifice, there's a caricature there. Like, Leo is the pig-headed mm. boss that refuses to move. And yeah. and you got um Johnny Casper, who's like, I'm a man 
know, uh, of ethics. Yeah. Ethics. But you kind of want that from supporting characters. Exactly. Yeah. Well, well, Tom Reagan, he, he's an enigma. Yeah. We don't know what his true intentions are. And maybe he doesn't even know what his true intentions are. Multiple viewings can still make you wonder what his real motive is, which is unusual for a typical character. Especially, mm. think about, like, modern cinema or cinema back then in the 90s. You would have characters that pretty, I'm a good guy, and I'm a bad guy. Or at the end of the movie, it would have been cut clear, like, yeah, I did this all along for you, Leo, because I'm still a loyal good man. Yeah, and he would have had a message like, I thought about it. It's like, how Yeah, like, I, I'm always a guy who's ten steps ahead. But, like, in this movie, you genuinely... I genuinely don't believe that Tom Reagan was ten steps ahead throughout all of this. Like, there's mm. some points where... But then there are other points where it's like, uh, he wasn't... He, he, he gambled on that. Yeah, like, there's, there's a literally part... a scene yeah. where he's talking to Johnny Casper about, like... He's trying to frame all of this stuff on a certain character called the Dane. And Johnny Casper is behind Gabriel Byrne, behind Tom. And you see, just we're seeing Tom's face. And he says some line of dialogue like, yeah, he's trying to frame it on the mink. And you actually see Gabriel Byrne, like, give this face like, oh, is that going to land? <laughs> which you wouldn't see in a movie in which a character's ten steps ahead yeah. or whatever. Like, and, and it would the, be way more subdued. Yeah, and the more obvious one, he literally throws up at one point because he thinks it's all over for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I agree, like, but that's what we want from this. We want Steve Buscemi playing Peter Laurie. We want him being these fast... He's hired in the movie because he was a guy who could speak the fastest, mm. which is amazing. We want... We want someone like Albert Finney to roll up his sleeves and beat the living shit out of Gabriel Byrne and be pig-headed until the very end of the movie. And he's still pig-headed at the end of the movie. He still hasn't learned fucking shit. Yeah. Him, uh, Gabriel Byrne and Werner are basically the two characters that I feel like kind of like deflect that artifice the most. Because Werner, you still don't know. Like, she's out out for her brother. But like... Is she aware of how much of a sleazeball her brother is? <laughs> well, yeah, the impression I got of her was just a lot of obliviousness. Yeah, but then also she's super cunning and smart and mm. she's always manipulating and she is exactly what he says she is as well, which is a grifter. Like, how how much is it of her grifting and how much is it of her being actually oblivious to the situations at hand? Like, mm. is she oblivious enough to know... Not to know that saving her brother's life will literally destroy the city? Or is that a grift because he matters more? Like, that's the kind of thing Mm. that I love about this movie. Now, let's talk about that opening scene, Bartek. It is probably (laughs) one of my favourite non-comedic opening scenes. I said in The The Intolerable Cruelty (laughs) that that's my favourite opening scene in a movie of a comedic level of Jeffrey Rush driving down one of the most famous Hollywood streets in which it's got like palm trees and whatnot and he's just singing, I'm just a poor boy. But in this movie, you know, you have the hat blowing in the wind and whatnot, but you have that opening scene in which we're on that tumbler glass and just, you can barely hear Johnny Casper's dialogue and it's and you hear like the loud clunking of the glass in and then you see it slowly pans out and there's just Johnny Casper played wonderfully by John Polito mm. who was in Big Lebowski. He was like the 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 PI that was following the dude around the whole time. Yeah, I in I, the I... little little buggy <laughs> like in the little Herbie love bug car. I vaguely remember, yeah. Um, I think I read in his filmography that it was in one of the films we did on Appreciative Masterpieces, but I can't remember which one. He's in a ton. Yeah. Uh, yeah, big big filmography. Yeah, and he is laying out the whole plot for us. 
this is an exposition scene, but it's such a well-written and well-acted scene that it gives you just so much character growth. Because what's what's Johnny Casper laying out for us in this opening scene? And what did you feel about this scene? Because this is, this is such I, a great yeah, scene. Yeah, for, for reasons unrelated to wanting to watch it twice, I did have to end up watching it twice. Because I, I streamed the film, and then when it got to the opening credits and it said John Tatura's name, the stream just, like, broke. It can't handle John. So a couple of hours... They were like, <laughs> he should have gone Noski, even though he's in this movie for less than ten minutes. Yeah, so a couple of hours later, I, I had the film downloaded, and I watched it again from the beginning. So I got to watch it twice. <laughs> Um, and I did understand it more the second time, so that was good. Um, yeah, he's basically explaining that uh, he's a man of ethics... And principles. Principles and ethics. He talks about how he, he makes a lot of bets. Yeah. A lot of them are fixed bets, so, like, you know, guaranteed winnings. Yeah. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, no, by no, the way. No, this is all right. Um, and he's complaining about the fact that the person, his bookie, tells other people about when the bets are fixed. Yeah, so that it can so be more profitable for the bookie because now he is sliding how the fix is going. Yeah, and and basically Johnny Casper is complaining about, you know, this underhanded uh, play at his underhanded play. Exactly. And he wants to... He wants if you to can't have... trust a fix, <laughs> what can you trust? One of the best lines ever spoken. Yep. And yeah, and he's basically wants to wants to get this guy killed. And who's he talking to? He's talking city? to Leo, the, his, uh, the, the Irish-American mobster that runs the city. Yeah, he's a politician. <laughs> <laughs> a politician. A councilman or whatever, yeah. Mm. And um, the great thing about this whole scene is you got this wonderful performance where, as Johnny Casper's, he, you can see he's a guy who wants to explode, but he's trying to stay composed and... and he wants to come across as elegant. Yeah. And, you know, he wants to be a guy who's talking about, like, I'm a man of morals and ethics, but really he's a guy who's like, shoot him in the fucking brain. Okay? Like, he wants yeah. to kill... He wants to... He's a volatile guy who's trying to stay, like, this composed. Like, like look at my son. He's quick as a whip. <laughs> like, all that kind of stuff. And he is trying to get to this information to Leo, which the greatest part about Johnny Casper is... He's right. Everything he wants, he, he's right. Let them kill the Schmutter because he's a piece of shit. John Turturro is an underhanded piece of shit in this movie. But Leo won't budge. Like, Leo's not listening. He's, like, letting him ramble on for this whole speech. And then he's just like, am I getting through to you? Am I clear? He's like, clear as mud. As mud. <laughs> <laughs> and I love throughout the scene, you got Johnny Casper, but behind him is the Dane. This huge, mammoth, huge guy. Very tall. Who's just looming in the background holding his hat, right? Mm. Like, you just see this hat behind him. And I love then behind Ga behind Leo is Gabriel Byrne, and he's just like really calm, like he's not trying to be intimidating. He's just there in the background, and this whole scene is perfect. You got everything going on. You got Johnny Casper trying to give all these reasons and his logic and ethics, and it's not going to work because Leo is fueled by emotions. Yes, he's fueled by love, which love for the the target's uh, sister, which comes in later because Gabriel Byrne when he tries to uh, play the sides of the Italians he says like well like uh, love's always a wild card like as a reason to why someone wouldn't act logically and with ethics yeah and that's exactly what Leo's doing he's not acting logically he's not acting with any ethics or code he's acting out of love out of blind love 
for someone who would <laughs> never do the same for him. <laughs> they even say that later on. But what I love about this scene, Bartek, and I thought you would appreciate, is when John Polito, when 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 Johnny Casper snaps, <laughs> when when he's like, "I'm not asking you, I'm telling you as a courtesy," and he just like fully snaps, and he's like, he's shaking his cheeks, and he's like, "I'm sickening coming into this office and kissing your Irish ass," and he's like telling him about like you're giving me the hi hat. <laughs> when Casper snaps in this film, it's fun, and you always have the Dane there to hold his shoulder, <laughs> like. He's just sweating. What did you think about that? <laughs> is he? Who's your favorite character in this? Because I was like, oh, I think it's Johnny Casper for for Bartok. He seems like for you the, would play him for the. Oh, thank you for the comedic level. Definitely Johnny Casper. Obviously, our main character is very intriguing. Mm. So it's yeah, a toss up between them two. But that's a great thing about Cohen's Johnny Casper isn't a purely comedic character oh, either, not, but no. he is incredibly funny. Mm. I love later on in the movie when he calls like Tom in. And he's got his son there. and, and Whenever his son's <laughs> in the film. It's <laughs> like fat little idiot. <sighs> what, did you, what did you eat? They're, like, they're saying that he's too... F- the teachers are saying that the kid's too fat. He's like, what did you eat for lunch? A hot dog. <laughs> Just mustard. a hot dog. Just a hot dog. A hot dog with mustard. <laughs> a hot dog with mustard. You hear that? You hear that, Dane? My son is quick as a whip. His son's <laughs> such a fucking idiot. <laughs> My parents' favorite scene in this movie, and it's probably one of mine, uh, is is the guess which hand the penny is in. I love the penny. Song. I love the whole penny thing. <laughs> Where Johnny Jasper's got a penny, and he's like, "Which one's it in?" And the son's like picking the wrong one, and he's like, "Nah, nah no." Guess again, and he guess again, the and right he shakes, one. and he still picks the wrong one, and he's just like. <sighs> All right, here's a penny, a shiny new penny. Here's a penny. Boys, give him your pennies. <laughs> and then the one guy who's from Baby's Day Out, by the way. I thought he was familiar. Mike Starr. We've had him yeah. a bunch of times. He's like, I don't have a penny, boss. That's a penny you owe him. That's a penny you owe him was a line I really loved. <laughs> Johnny Casper. Here's the thing. Where was that Oscar? He deserved it. Like, that is... Yeah. An Oscar, nom- at least worthy of a nomination. Like, that's probably a career best performance. I was reading that it was up against Goodfellas and The Godfather, I think. Godfather maybe. 3. Godfather <laughs> Part 3, yes. <laughs> yeah, given a Miller's Crossing. Um, but did you have a favorite? So, so you're saying Tom is your favorite overall character? I'm just, yeah, really intriguing main character. I'm surprised. I'm surprised to hear that. I was expecting you to be more like, yeah, like, um, like yeah, John well, Turturro. When you've got when you've got Johnny so many Casper. side characters that are you know so characterized, so fun. It's, it's like Tic Tac. <laughs> like Tic Tac. Tic Tac's a dumb one, right? No, he's the smart one. Oh, he's the smart. He's one. the little one, little gray-haired right. one. <laughs> Who, who gets beat up later by the Dane. <laughs> He's the one that gets called in by the dumb one, right? During the... That yeah, yeah. Scene. Yeah. <laughs> my favourite scene. Yeah. That's my favourite. My favourite scene in this whole entire movie is when Johnny Casper does call him in and he gives Johnny Casper the high hat and he, he you got a quick lip, boy, and I don't like that. You disrespect me. And they all leave except for the really big dumb guy. <laughs> and it's just like this really quiet scene where he's just like standing there and then he decides to take off his coat He's Hang like his just coat, like, take off his hat, take off his hat, put it on the coat rack, and then use, uh, roll up his sleeves, and just you got just Gabriel Byrne there being yeah. like, oh. <laughs> to use our paradox of the actor t- uh, teacher's words, he was deciding his actions. Yeah, and you could see the process of him deciding and, the actions. What I love is Gabriel Byrne, a guy whose character is supposed to be really smart, but not really. Mm. He's just sitting there, like trying to figure out, is he? going to beat me up right now and then he starts walking towards him i just love he gets up and he's like hold on hold on a second and the guy's like oh well okay he said hold on a second like we're we're men of honor here 
I just love that Gabriel Bird, like Tom, just grabs this chair and smacks him in the face, and he's like bleeding. He's like, Jesus, Tom, and just storms he's out not, like a but big he's not, child. He's not even really crying, is he? He's just like Jesus, Tom. Yeah, he's just like Jesus, Tom. He looks really offended. He sounds like he's really offended, like, and, like surprised and offended. Yeah, and then he like storms out like a child. And you hear this conversation behind a closed door, like he did what? And he's cutting back to that, and he's stomping and the Tom, door open. And Tom just standing there, like holding the chair still in the air, like what is going on right now? And then I love Tic Tac, this little silver-haired guy, just storms in, throws his hat, grabs the chair, throws it away, and then just beats the living shit out of him. That's one of the many times where Tom Reagan gets the shit kicked out of him in this movie. Yeah, though I think there was like a trivia counter, like listing every single <laughs> bit of injury he got in the film. That's my favorite scene. I just love it. It's so funny. It's one of the best. That I just love Gabriel Byrne's solid acting, and he's just like, "What the fuck is gonna go on?" <laughs> and then he moved on to Vampire Academy. Vampire Academy. Vampire Academy. He was great in that too. <laughs> he was. So yeah, this movie has all fixated on a character. That is in the movie for about ten minutes. The schmutter, John Totoro. Yes, yes. This is all happening because of him. He's fixing these bets. Like he's he's remo- he's removing the no- like he's ex- he's expanding the knowledge to people, certain people, about the bets being fixed, so that way he can earn some cash. Because then it's shifting the the bets and whatnot the odds to and the stuff, odds and yeah. stuff to There's his maths involved. Favor maths. <laughs> Uh, and that to his favor, and Johnny Casper wants to kill him, but Leo won't let him because he's in love with Verna, who is a piece of shit, who's sleeping with Tom. Now that is an interesting aspect to this movie that I often like think about. Is just like, does Tom actually love her? Like, there's a lot of dialogue in this movie in which she's like, "You're doing it for me. Like, just admit that you love me. Like, you want me." And he's just like, no. <laughs> well, before he kissed her in the, in the the change room, didn't he say like, "God, I love you" or something? Yeah, but he says it in a way in which he's being oh, yeah, an antagonist. Yeah, it's not that asshole. I believed it or anything, but he said it. But so. what do you think with Tom? Do you think he actually has, like, did this or has or did some of this or has feelings for her? There's a line of dialogue in which she says, like, you have a, you have a, was like, you have a small heart, like, you have a small but feeble heart, and it's for me, and then at the end she's like, you're a big, you're a lie with no heart. Do you think he loves her, or actually has feelings for her himself? Yeah, again, I don't have a solid answer, but I think I might be leaning no. I feel like there's some sort of, like, calculation going on in his head with that whole thing, like... I don't know, trying to expose her for the dishonesty that that she that her dishonest nature. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 a tough one because yeah. I'm also of that opinion somewhat. But then he's acting at the end when he she sees her at the funeral and she's like says the line "drop dead" again. Uh, there's a lot of repeated lines in this movie, and usually that would be annoying, but it's done so well in this. Like, hey, mm. Bartek, what's the rumpus? Mm. Uh, <laughs> did you notice that every time? Someone entered a room, a character would be like, what's the rumpus? I think I remember it a few times. Uh, Jesus Tom, or Christ Tom, (laughs) is uttered a lot, or she says drop dead a lot. Um, They're acting in that scene. The way he reacts to her saying drop dead, he kind of reacts like, that kind of hurts a bit. You know, like he's kind of like, it's a wound that she's poking at. And that kind of makes me go, 
does he care? Yeah, well, I guess one thing I would say about that is if this whole film was up until, you know, him killing off John Turturro was all part of a big plan, that scene being the last scene in the film would be after the plan was over. So I mm. guess that was him taking the the zero approval ending of his plan. Like, mm. I did all this... To, I, I sullied my reputation for a purpose. What that purpose was, we don't know. But I yeah. guess that's just his first reaction of like, oh, this is what I've built up to. Now, we could keep talking about the delving of interesting themes and character developments, but we also got to talk about some of the badass, awesome scenes in the movie. And I'm, of course, referring to the O'Danny Boy scene. <laughs> O'Danny Boy. To set up a bit, uh, obviously this is at the point in the movie where the gangland war has kind of escalated the death of a certain Rug Daniels, which, that's so beautifully shot. Like, when you have the scene where the little boy discovers the dead body of the gangster Rug Daniels and there's, like, a dog there in an alley, you gotta get this beautiful shot of, like, this dog with sunlight coming behind it in this dirty little alley, and then the little boy with these big ears, and then the dead body of Rugs with his stupid toupee kind of falling off. And it's just all silent. Like, just nothing's really... No, no, nothing. And it's like every single shot of that... All three shots, all four shots, are all perfectly lit, all perfectly done. It was Cinematography was by Barry Sonnefeld. Did you say three or four shots? Well, yeah, because it's like you got the shot of the dog, you got the shot of the kid, you got the shot of the gangster, and then you got the shot of all of them. In ret- it feels like there are a lot more. At, at that's, least that's yeah. in my brain, the shots that stick out. Like the- I'm not saying you're wrong, I'm just, that's a compliment to uh, the film. <laughs> And everything's perfect. Barry Sonnefeld did the cinematography. He do, He's a director now. I mean, we did Nine Lives. That's his film. He, he did directed- Men in Black. Okay. Barry Sonnefeld started out as their cinematographer and went on to directing. This is the last thing he he's, did cinematography-wise. He's excellent wise. at shooting animals. He said this is his favorite piece of cinematography he ever did. And I agree. Mm. I agree. But um, that scene's perfect because everything's perfect. The kid looks exactly right. It's the right kind of dog. Like, for that scene and for that era... And that area... The dog and the toupee kind of matched, I reckon. They (laughs) all look perfect, but Rug Daniels dies. It's mysterious as to why he died until, like, the very end of the movie. Mm. Like, who killed Rug Daniels? It's Mink. But, um... There's... comes a point where Johnny... uh, Johnny Casper's eventually got to strike back against... uh, Against, um... Leo, because they raided him like leo got the police to raid him because he assumed that johnny casper killed rug daniels and you know you never stand down um then we get this amazing scene a scene so epic that i wrote about it in a film essay at university yeah of leo just sitting in his house smoking a cigar in his pajamas (laughs) as Someone down as his guards downstairs are getting garroted to death, and one of them has a lit cigarette that lights up the house below. Now, Bartek, what did you think about this scene? I'm just trying to remember this scene. Hold Where on. Leo is in his bed, and two men with Tommy guns come upstairs oh, to kill right. him. Right, so you said Leo. For some reason, I was thinking Tom. Leo. Yeah, Leo. The O Danny Boy scene, because <laughs> yes. throughout this whole sequence, the song O Danny Boy is playing on his gramophone, and it's like a diegetic and non diegetic sound in the movie. Yeah. Because I, it's still playing at the same volume once he's outside. I read that the Coen brothers had to direct the singer to time it properly so that it would fit the scene so and i it definitely worked so what did you think yeah it was a very impressive action sequence 
did you expect that from this movie? Because that's a bit into the movie, and there's not really it's not really an action movie. Yeah, you know, when if you read the on the Wikipedia page the plot, it goes through the plot fairly fairly quickly, and they mention that scene within like the first two paragraphs, so it feels like it comes much sooner than it does. Um what can I say? Very impressive. He he goes through the whole house, it's on fire, he's unscathed. I read someone was critiquing it because like oh he he came out cartoonishly unscathed but it's like it's because he was he's uh, he's prepared yeah it's <laughs> like everything he did it was like okay i know exactly what i have to do like he knew exactly what window to throw the gun out of where to jump how to let you know that's exactly the point mm. like it's because he's skillfully prepared like like my favorite aspect of that is not just the music and how kind of funny the scene is, because that scene makes you smile, doesn't yeah. it? The thing that I love is when he's sitting there smoking his cigar and he, he smells smoke and he looks through his wooden floorboards and you see the smoke rising out. Mm. And that's how he knows, oh shit, they're coming to kill me. Another, I should have watched this scene twice. <laughs> another movie wouldn't have done that. They would have just had the gangsters come in and he'd be like, oh, and grab his gun. Right, but I just love that skillful touch of the smokes coming through the floorboards. Like, like them killing the people downstairs has a consequence for them. Yeah, like, like it's it tips him off of what's going to happen. And I love how he has it all thought out. Like, I'm going to grab the gun. I'm going to take out my cigar and put it out and put it in my pocket so that I can take it out later. I'm going to jump under the bed, shoot them in the foot, shoot them in the head, and then. While the other guy runs out, I'll grab his Tommy gun, throw it out the window. Like, there's so many great moments in that sequence, and it's all skillfully timed. The singer had to do it all that way. And he just murders that guy upstairs. Like, he just keeps shooting him, and the guy's, like, dead. He's clearly dead. <laughs> he's shooting him. I love the touch of the guy's finger still on the trigger of the Tommy gun, so he's still shooting, and he, like, shoots up in the roof and then down on his own feet. Because why wouldn't he? <laughs> and then, like, he's dead. And then he's like, okay, oh, there's a car coming at me that's shooting me. I'll just stand still. I won't duck or move. I'll just murder them violently. Like, they keep going down the road. And you think, oh, well, they're safe. And then the car just, like, gently crashes into a tree, catches fire, and explodes. And he's just standing there. That's a moment that's worthy of a poster of Albert Finney with a cigar in his mouth and a smoking Tommy gun in, like, the dead of night in this fancy street. Mm. It's perfect. It's, like, a highlight of the movie. It'd be good for, like, a deceptive post, like, oh, this action film, and then it's this film. <laughs> I had a book, a film book, when I was uh, back in my hometown that was, like, great, some great movie scenes and whatnot, and they talked about this as the great scene for Miller's Crossing, and it was just, like, the in the book, it was this huge picture of that moment of him with a cigar. And it gives you, it does give you this understanding of, oh, this is one of those gangster movies where they're shooting in violence, like like uh, Untouchables or something, right? Like, yeah. like it makes you think, oh, it's like the Untouchables, where it's like an action set piece movie. Like, that's that moment is the equivalent of the set piece of the pram going down the stairs and the Untouchables, mm. except for this is done more comedically. Like, I think it's a comedic scene and awesome. Like, it's funny to hear Oh Danny Boy play. While while old Albert Finney is just Tommy gunning the fuck out of all of these poor guys, <laughs> this old guy with a cigar, and he goes out his cigar. He's in his pajamas. I love that even before when he sees the smoke on the floor, he puts his slippers on 
you get this gratuitous shot of like these gorgeous slippers and his old man feet going into these slippers like again that shows that he's prepared like i'm gonna jump out the window i don't do that in barefoot mm. smart yeah, I guy for- i forgot the detail of the smoke through the floorboards that puts a lot of things into perspective yeah because it's not like it would have been fully uh you know, uh, thinking while you're doing it. It's like, oh, you could prepare in advance. And the fact that it played out makes it, you know, badass. Just to go back to that opening scene for a sec, that lo- yes. that scene ends with some great dialogue between uh, uh, between Tom and Leo where he's just like... Thinking. Thinking. I don't think. Oh, I don't like thinking, Tom. <laughs> it's like, you should start. That's... You should think about starting. Yeah, and that's the end of that. And we get to, I think... What we need to talk about as well, we'll get back to in some fun scenes, but we need to talk about that hat mm. in 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 the woods. His dream, his dream hat. Mm. What did you think of that? Pa- what did you think of that image when it opens up? And that's like at the beginning, that the hat falling onto the leaves and blowing in the wind. What do you think of that? Because I always find that a very strikingly powerful image. That is a thing that when you think about this movie, that's what you think about. What did you think of it? Yeah, it was something that I, I just kept in my mind as I was watching it, because I wanted to find out if there was a meaning to the hat, because it mm. gets brought up a fair bit. The characters, you know, put on, take off their hats, they hold their hats at some point, so mm. I was wondering, there's a motif going on here, but what does it mean? What did you think? I'm honestly still not quite sure what it okay. means. For me, I think it, and this is a good art school wanky on you. I mean, but can you not? So not, that's, this is that's a Coen not, Brothers yeah. movie, so you have to. I think it represents. I think the hat is a visual representation of power. Mm. I think it's a visual representation, for the most part, in the movie of power. Mm. Who, like, hence the line of dialogue. It would be silly for me to chase after my own hat or whatever. It would be silly to chase after power, right? Okay. I find that that's what I go with. There's many different interpretations, but that's my interpretation. Like, uh, the hat falling in the woods and blowing away, that's his power. That does... Letting his power blow to the winds. He, the inciting incident for Tom is to get his hat back from a woman, from a twist, from a woman. Like, that's so, like... And that's so funny. He says in the movie, it would be foolish for me to chase after my own hat, but that's literally what he does. Mm in the movie like in the very inciting incident he chases after the hat he lost that was when he was talking about the dream with uh with verna yeah it's like did the hat become a man in your dreams no no did the hat let me guess you grabbed it and the hat became something else and he's like no it stayed a hat Hmm. and i think it's power i think it represents power or status or or something like that that does fit with some of the stuff i was reading um I looked at the Roger Ebert review for this, and he gave it three out of four. Mm. One of the comments alleged that it used to be in a three and a half, but I don't know if that's true or not. And um, it was one of those reviews where a lot of the things he was saying I agreed with, and then a lot of the comments were like, wow, Roger, you missed a lot of things, like this mm. and that and this and that. Um, yeah, the first two sentences of Roger Ebert's review was like, the room, I can't stop thinking about the room. Which room? He was talking about Leo's office. Oh, he was, yes. He was talking about how it's such a fantastic office. It is. Roger Ebert wishes that he could work in that office. I agree. I want Tom's bedroom. Like, his <laughs> house? I want Tom's apartment. Yeah, but the thing that Roger Ebert was saying was that uh, everyone doesn't fit 
in this film. They don't fit into the the clothes they wear, the offices they inhabit. Mm. He says that they're all mismatched, and a lot of the comments were calling him out on that, saying that's the point. Yeah. These are gangsters trying to be, be you know, political yeah. bosses. They're trying to look good, but then, as we said with Casper, he breaks at his character and like yeah, you know, he's a guy. And... He's a guy that is. A man who's got too much power for his own good. Yes, but he wants to act like he belongs in like a fancy office as a fancy leader kind of thing. He wants to be the mayor. Yeah. That's what he actually wants. Yeah. Get out of my office. This is my office. Get out! <laughs> I want my two Italian cousins that both look exactly like the Italians from um, Oscar. Who <laughs> don't speak a word of English. Oh. <laughs> so, go on with what you're saying. Because um, I find that interesting. I agree with all of all of this Yeah, stuff. yeah. Honestly, the comments for the Roger Ebert review go into a lot of depth about this film that really helped me to think about the, it a bit the, more. The only one that I'll disagree with again on that is Tom. Tom's place is exactly who Tom is, empty. Mm. His place has little in it. And that's kind of Tom. Like, at the end of the movie, he has to decide. He has to be the gangster or be the man of action that this world's demanding. He has to lose his soul, his heart. What heart? He has to become fully empty at the end of this movie to redeem the world that he finds to be the world that needs to be. Like, he has to fully embrace and callous over his soul at the end of this movie to restore balance. Mm. Like, there's no play here. Exactly. Exactly, that's right. There is no play here, but that's the play. There is none. Sometimes you have to be chaotic and sometimes you have to be soulless to get things done properly. Like, if if we did kill you, if we removed that... uh, that love, that humanity, then we would have been fine. Mm. And that's what he has to learn at the end. But um, no, I agree with all that. I think, yeah, I think the hat represents power or some level of that idea. He's chasing after. And then at the end, he puts on his hat again and he's got his own sense of power. He's no longer Leo's guy. Mm. He's his own man. He is going to live what he wants to be. He's going to be, he has no debts anymore. That's a part of it. He owes people throughout they, this they movie. They mentioning the name Lazar. Lazar, who we never meet, yeah. which I thought was great. Yeah. And Lazar, uh, like, no hard feelings. Oh, Tom. Lazar knows. <laughs> like, that's what I mean. Tom, in this movie, he's had, I think, his representation of power and, and, and the, the debt of owing. And at the end of the movie, he no longer owes debt to Leo, to Werner, to Lazar, to anyone, mm. to even to himself. At the end, he is... He's full, like he's a full person at the end of this movie, even if he had to sacrifice yeah, his heart. I, I think maybe my interpretation of the hat would be kind of what all that you were just describing there—that end point, that full person. Mm. Maybe that's what he was chasing or aspiring to, and yeah. keeping his hat close to him would be him, you know, being on that path. He's no longer Leo's shadow. Yeah, which <laughs> or is he? Or is he? Exactly. Like, some people will still see it that he was still loyal to the end. While I don't think that it was he was being loyal to Leo, he was being loyal to his ethics, his version of morality, his loyalty. Like, like mm. if you don't have ethics, then what do you have? And I also find an interesting thing with this, Bartek, is there's a line that really stuck with me during this movie, like, this time viewing. Mm-hmm. Which is Leo... No, um, Casper is talking to uh, Tom. 
And yes. he keeps saying throughout the movie that the Dane is always wanting me to double cross you, but I don't want to double cross you because I'm a man of my word and my word's my word. Yeah. But there's a line that really struck struck a chord with me, and he goes, "He wants me to double cross you, but if I double cross you, then who do I? Who else do I double cross? And then where does it all end? Yeah. It's all about ethics, you see. And I find that interesting because at the end of the movie, Tom double crosses him. Yeah. And Tom double-crosses everyone, and where does it lead? Because at the end, he puts on that hat, and you have that awesome music. Like, like the sound in the, 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 the score, the music, the perfect choices of the blending of the Irish themes and Italian themes and period piece themes of music, perfect. But when he puts on that hat, and you have that music, a part of me goes, yes, he's become his full self, but at the same time, at what cost? At what cost? It's kind of like at the end of Godfather, mm. right? And, where and they close the door. And is it worth it for him? Is it actually like, yeah, he became a full person, or yeah, he became, he got power, whatever, but at what cost? At the cost of his heart. Mm. And that's and that's the cost of double-crossing, double-crossing, playing the game. Yeah, I was, I was thinking with Tom, like, I was wondering if he would fit a label of you might describe a sociopath and on on like a trigger thing you might think like oh yeah with with how he betrayed everyone yes but his calculations i think must have considered their emotions really strongly mm. so i don't think he fits the label of a I sociopath i don't think he's either. a sociopath or psychopath yeah. he cares too much yeah he cares he couldn't kill him to begin with yeah like like that is saying something and at the end he has to you can't let him live yeah. Right? And here's the thing. Not only can he not let him live, and the script can't let not let him live, but we, the audience, can't let the Shmutter live. Because Bernie, yeah. Bernie Birnbaum, which is the best name, <laughs> everyone has the best name in this movie. Like, every name's perfect. There's a character called Adolf in this movie. It's perfect. Every, every, every character. But, like, it wouldn't be satisfying, and it wouldn't make sense. There are some things I've talked about off podcast and on podcast there are certain characters certain things that you have to do even if you don't want to or you shouldn't do even if you want to like uh you know in game of thrones spoiler alert for game of thrones but certain characters in that show Littlefinger and the varies die and you could tell the script writers wanted to satisfy the audience's bloodlust mm-hmm. but it doesn't make sense for those characters, the way that they were set up in that universe, the way that they were positioned, their morals and ethics, whatever, to die. They shouldn't die. But then there are characters like Bernie Birnbaum where death's the only thing that will will solve this problem. You cannot let this guy continue to live. He will not be able to continue to live even if Gabriel Byrne let him live because he is on a road to hell and there's nothing going to stop that. He would have died at some point anyway. Because mm. like, at the end, she says, like, none of his friends really liked him, did they? Because he's all about having as many friends as possible. But he was never a friend to those friends. Yeah. And that would have led to destruction for him anyway. Like, like Tom was his friend in that moment when he let him live. And what did he do? He, he betrayed him. <laughs> now, talk in, a, about- in a very casual Ex- casually explained way, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about probably the most interesting scene in the movie. Let's remove the human, all this. 
And probably one of the more iconic scenes, it might have been a scene that you might have seen referenced in pop culture, maybe not, but it is probably the most iconic scene of the movie, the scene in Miller's Crossing itself. Yeah. When, to prove loyalty to Johnny Casper, he... Uh, Tom has to uh, kill the bullet. He has to kill Bernie Birnbaum. Yeah. The great thing about that was he didn't know he had to do that until he was already in Miller's Crossing. He just thought he had to sell him out. Yeah. Which, Tom being Tom, that's enough. Like, he is always a guy who's working through others. Like, like he manipulates others. He whispers in people's ear to get stuff done, but he is not the guy who pulls the trigger. Mm-hmm. Bernie says that. You're not the guy who does this. Yeah. That scene in Miller's Crossing itself best scene in the movie probably dramatically speaking like with John Turturro giving an Oscar worthy performance like and I mean this when John Turturro dies the Oscars in their memoriam will play that scene of him being like look in, the, look in your heart look in your heart hmm. it'll be that scene would they play that scene? yeah because it's honestly it's his best acting in my honest heart I think that he's his best scene like best performance moment in his entire filmography that I've seen like, I like Barton Fink, which is the movie that gave them the Coen brothers' writer's block to the point in which they wrote... Th- uh, no, no, no. Sorry, this movie, Mills Crossing, gave them so much writer's block that they, they wrote the script to Barton Fink, which is a movie about someone with writer's block. Hmm. The, the, the question I was asking, though, is, like, do they really play in the memoriam thing scenes where people scream that much? Don't they tend to play, like, tender scenes? No, it, it doesn't matter. It usually, I don't, I don't think it should matter. Uh, if they do, bullshit. But like, um, that's what I'm saying. I think they might be no, bullshit. I, about no, but it. it's not about him screaming. It's about him showing great acting range because we because it's all fake anyway. Yeah. What are you gonna do if you did if you did get the if you did get me? I'll just squirt a few and you'd let me go. <laughs> what a prick. <laughs> but let's talk about the the Miller's Crossing scene. What yep. did you think of this? And what did you think of where that led? Because. Dramatically speaking, that is such an interesting turn that Bernie comes back <laughs> to be a prick. <laughs> and, and like I said, in a casual way, it's like, yeah, you know, I was thinking about it and I can <laughs> kind of screw you on this. Yeah, you gave me an angle, you see? <laughs> so what did you think of the look in your heart? It was definitely a tense scene because even if, even you, even if you don't understand Tom, but you can at least understand that he has a sort of plan going. Mm. He's purposely betraying this guy, and now a big onus is on him to do a bad thing yeah. for a purpose. I've read online people saying like he had to do things for a good purpose, but I, don't, I think good might be stretching it a bit. Yeah. Good in he the sense... He has to do things for a purpose. For a is, purpose. Yeah. Is what I would say. Definitely. Because the moralities and ethics are so blurred in this. Yes, only Casper is moral and ethical. Yeah, kinda. <laughs> because he says those words, Ryan, you see. But he kinda <laughs> is. <laughs> like he's probably the most morally straight one in this movie. And he's still fucked. He does fulfill the bullet in the brain, uh Put it in the brain <laughs> We'll get to that soon. <laughs> um Yes, well in this scene the onus is on Tom to put the bullet in the brain. Mm. Oh sorry, sorry, bullet in the Leg, then the brain? You have to put him down. Put him down. And then put it in the brain. Then put in the brain. Tic Tac says that very strongly. Yes. Uh, they, they mentioned there needs to be two shots, and when, when he only fired the one shot, and then he told him to run away, I was like, weren't they meant to be two? But then he fired a second one. I'm like, clever Tom. <laughs> clever Tom. Now I believe you're smart. Yeah, this scene was very tense. Um, and I was wondering how it was going to end, because it could have gone either way. Yeah. Because this guy seems like he'll do anything for his end, 
Mm. And again, thinking about, you know, what was Tom's goal angle ultimately, was sparing him part of it or was that actually a lapse in his his plan? I think it was. You think it was a lapse? I think it was a lapse Mm. because I think... He didn't, he didn't expect to be the one to do it. Yeah. Tom isn't a killer at that point, right? He is a guy who gets people killed, but he isn't the one who does the killing. That's not mm. in his moral... That's not something he can do. Mm, I agree. And in that but... moment, he is put to that test, and he decides against better judgment. And I think you can tell that by Gabriel Burns acting when he's like, disappear, you got to go. Like, if you do come back, you are dead. Mm. Like, I think for him, it's a lapse. I think he was, his heart was exposed in that moment. And Bernie took it and twisted mm. it to his end. I think I also lean towards lapse. I almost said lasp. Um, the only thing that would like make me hesitate on that would be the idea that he's kind of quick on his feet in horrible situations to, to mm. get out of them. So maybe it was a ruse, but... But he never usually... Tom, Tom, we're talking mm. about. Yeah. He never usually, to get out of a ruse, get out of a situation, resorts to murder. Mm. He usually resorts into quick talking or l- luck. Luck most of the time. Because cops Absolutely will come luck, in. Yeah. The cops will just come in and just be like, here we are. Now, we're talking about that scene. That is a brilliant scene. Did you... The cops before, coming in? No, no, no. Sorry. The the look in your heart. Yep. Did you, before we had him come back, did you believe him, Bernie? Did you believe Bernie, like, genuinely was, like, going to disappear or was weak properly? Like, did you believe that crying act that he puts on? Because later on we find out that's an act that he uses. Yeah, he uses it. But did you buy it? I thought that there would be a consequence, but I wasn't sure if he would be like, if him going back on his word, in quotes, would be the consequence. Not even when you think about the first time we meet Bernie, where he broke into his house and he's just like <laughs> sitting there playing with his own hat and like playing with his hat and being like, uh, you're going to be my friend, right? <laughs> He looks great, John Turturro, in this. He looks exactly like how he should. <laughs> yeah, well, again, yes, I agree with that. Um, but it was just the thing of, like, is he going to come back and cause trouble, mm. or is the place he's going to go to, he's going to do something that will come back and cause trouble? So what trouble? did you think of John Turturro's plan? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great I've plan. already said it twice. Very well brought up and explained. Uh, it's so... <laughs> bo- what did you think of him, though? Like, when he came there? Because when I was watching it, all I kept saying and putting in my notes was, that fucking piece of shit. He's just a fucking little worm of a man. When, like, when, when, so when, slimy. When Tom correctly guessed who he was, he was like, how did you know? It's like, well, you're the only one that knocks and then breaks in or whatever. <laughs> yeah, my other... He's like, oh, you, you know, your other friends. He's like, I don't have any other friends. <laughs> I love that sequence, though, where he is, like... I want to make you... I love the way he holds his hands, John Turturro. Like, he's just like, I want to make you sweat. I want to watch you squirm a little. And when... When you sass me, like, or whatever it is, like, when... When when you show... He's basically doing the when you show me the high hat, it ruins it. Mm. I love that he wants to be Johnny Casper on a level. Like, Mm. he wants power. He wants to be a top dog himself, but he's too wormy. He is not the kind of guy who could ever achieve that, the schmutter. 
What did you think of the nickname that they gave him in this, the the Shmara kid? <laughs> and did you look up what that means? I didn't look it up, but I think I read somewhere what it means. Isn't it like a slur? Yeah, it's a derogatory Yiddish Jews term because yeah. they're both Jewish, right? And they make a lot of references to them being like Jewish street rats, basically, Averna and uh, Bernie. Mm. Bernie Birnbaum. <laughs> Uh, and there's a lot of bigotry in this between the Irish and the Italians, the Irish, the Italians, and the Jews. There are no real black people in this movie. Mm. Um, it's great. John Turturro gives a, a career best performance. He's perfect. But we also have uh, wonderful, wonderful amounts of imagery and scenes of wonderment and quiet. What I like about this movie is how quiet it is. Mm. It's just, you have scenes of Gabriel Byrne just sitting there, not saying a damn thing, and it says so much in comparison to, but then you have lots of scenes with great dialogue and lots of talking, like, he that's the thing, Leo and Johnny and the rest of them all talk shit, but the only person who really knows the shit is, is, is the Dane and, and, and Tom, because they're the ones who listen. To the point in which when Johnny Casper's kid comes in the second time, <laughs> and he's like, Daddy, 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 and he's like, Quiet. Just and then he's like, Smacks him. He's like, Take a, take a leaf off this guy's book and listen, or <laughs> whatever it is. Be quiet and listen. The kid's like crying. Like, oh. And he's like, Oh, well, you're not my friend anymore. <laughs> I love the line too. It's like, Oh, did somebody hit you? <laughs> no, we got friends anymore. Kids. <laughs> Am I right? And then he just keeps talking about his plan <laughs> while still, like, console, consoling in quotes. Um, this isn't really a, a super poignant touch, but I liked the the thing of uh, when there's dialogue that you don't necessarily have to hear, like the, like the two gangsters through the door yeah. during the beating or when they're on the phone. You can actually still hear what the other person yeah. is saying, just barely. So it's like, oh, you don't. You, they're doing the thing of you don't have to hear what they're saying. They, the character you can hear will, mm. you know, clue you in what they're saying. But they have the touch of them being there. Like, oh yeah, I can, I can hear Steve Buscemi on the phone. <sighs> Steve Buscemi's great in this. He has like one scene where he physically turns up, and he's like, I kept wondering if he was going to come back. Yeah. Fast talking, <laughs> weird little man. Well, he does come back, kind of. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Now I want to talk about Leo. We yeah. haven't talked much about Leo. What did you think of him? an Albert Finney's performance and what he does, what he, where he fits in the story. I mean, there's a great scene in which he comes to Tom's place at like 4am in the morning, wondering yeah, yeah. where Werner is and telling us about the rug Daniels. But what did you think of, of him and any particular highlights of his character or scenes? I did like how in the very first scene, the one I saw twice, he did seem somewhat in charge, mm. you know, very serious. Like he's, he's telling Casper, you're as, Big as I let you be, and, and don't no you forget bigger. It, no yeah. bigger. <laughs> then when he leaves, he kind of settles down, talks to Tom a bit, and you see, like, oh, he's a bit more human. But then as the film goes on, that bit more human becomes a bit, like... Pathetic? bit more pathetic. Like, obviously, he's got the action scene, but, uh, yeah, a bit more pathetic. Like, you can see where his flaws are. He even says in that very first scene, like, ah, oh, you know, I don't like thinking. Even the action scene has a consequence, though. Yeah. Tom does tell him... That makes you look weak, though. And he's like, geez, it would have been better if I died. And he's like, maybe. Because that whole thing shows how weak he is. Like, like even though he murdered them all, it showed that he could be touched. Mm. 
It shows... Because they got so close to him. They got so close. And And where were the cops? And like you said, he saw the smoke, and that was probably one of his uh, advantages. Yeah, exactly. But it shows how weak he was. Even though that was, in in the moment, a glorious high-point action scene, immediately has a consequence. Mm. It shows how weak you are. They shouldn't have been able to do that in the first place. That's actually worse for you. And he, I love that. Jeez, I, sh- I guess I should have died. <laughs> um, yeah, I do agree. He becomes a little bit more of a pathetic, sad... He doesn't live up to the strong first impression, I He becomes more frail as you know him. Yeah. Like, like in the very his, end. In his last scene, he's basically saying, I'm willing to beg you to come back and, you know, be my right-hand and man. And he's still oblivious because he's like, it could be the way it was. And it can never be that way again. Mm. How can it ever be? And he still thinks at the end that, oh, you two are young and I can forgive that. And it's like, I'm not looking for forgiveness. I never asked for it. And he, and that's the thing I like about Tom. He never demands or asks for things from Leo. Mm. Like he doesn't want him to pay his debts. He doesn't want protection. Like he doesn't want any of that. Like that's not his place. But I agree. Leo becomes more frail and pathetic, but not in a truly sad or humorous way just in a really natural way because albert finney great performance mm. i love the scene can we talk about the scene where he tells leo that he's sl- that he was sleeping with verna yes yeah and what i love about that scene is in a traditional hollywood movie leo would have immediately blown his top and be like Wah! and maybe punch him immediately or grab him or whatever but do you remember how that he actually reacted in the moment? Yeah, he just stands up, turns his back, looks out the window, and just sighs it out. Yeah, it, it, and then Tom just leaves yeah. because what can he do? Like you said, in a more typical uh, Hollywood film, it would be a bit more like the liar revealed trope. Like you, the main character will have like mm. all of their the reason you suck speech thrown at them and stuff like that. If it was Untouchables, he would have grabbed a baseball bat. And beat the guy's head in. Like, after, a, after a speech where he's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. <laughs> right? But instead, he just... It's just such a deliberately smart choice where he just stands up and he just sighs out and then Tom goes and... Uh, shot composition-wise, this is one of my favourites where we're following Tom mm. through the corridor of like a million dudes. Yeah. And then you see behind him is... Is Albert Finney just casually walking behind, taking off his jacket, handing his like, like, and I just love you know Tom kind of notices that people are reacting while he's walking past. He just looks around, just punch <laughs> immediately, and then people are helping him back up Way... so that he can get punched some more. Way earlier in this episode, you mentioned you described Albert Finney as bullheaded. This was yeah. the scene that I was immediately thinking of. Yeah. But I loved it. He deserved yeah. the, oh, He yeah. deserved to get the shit kicked out of him. And I love that the only reason that he didn't kill him, Tom, he didn't kill Tom, is because the man from Stardust comes over. He goes, uh, Tom, Tom. I mean, Leo, Leo, it's okay. I'll kick him out. Like, you know, that's the only reason, I feel, that he didn't just beat him to death right there. Poland saved him. Poland saved him. Um, and Leo's great. And I love the final scene where Leo's going to marry her. Why? <laughs> No! <laughs> and, and she was the one that proposed. So, yeah, and yeah. he feels weird about that, but let's not talk about that. That's not what he says. Let's not talk about that. And he goes, it's okay. And Tom's like, it's okay. Um, There's so many cogs and turns in this movie. I really love, though, one of the things I liked about this, too, is from a modern perspective, from a 2019 perspective, think about this. It's the 1990s. Uh, this came out, 1990, 1990 itself. 
And this movie just casually has so many gay characters in it, and it's never really yeah, it like, like a three, sl- right? Like it has three, and none of them are really like get homophobic stuff against them. Like the closest is Mink gets it, but Mink is such a such a flake of a person that they're really more judging him on that aspect of his character, not how he gay he is. Mm. Like, Steve Buscemi is in a homosexual relationship with the Dane, who is Johnny Casper's right-hand man, and he's also in a relationship with Bernie Birnbaum. And it's just so casual. They're just like, yeah, you know, he's, he's Eddie Dane's boy. Which I find is interesting that an Italian gangster mob's right-hand guy is not only not g- Italian, yeah. but also gay. Mm. And I also love the fact that none of these characters who are gay, maybe Mink, come across as that typical effeminate gay guy kind of way, but they're not also They're just guys. They're just dudes. Yeah, it, it almost came across to me like, they keep saying boy, and I guess they're gay, but this is a 90s film that's not really, yeah, mm. focusing on that. I guess that's impressive. And then, yeah. I love with the Dane, though, how he just does not trust Tom straight from the get-go. And yeah, why we haven't should talked about you? him yet, have we? Chad <laughs> mentioned him. What did you think about the Dane? He was definitely a good antagonistic opposing figure for Tom. Yeah, he's bigger than him. He's 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 he knows exactly what he's up to. I loved it. I loved Throughout it. the film I kept thinking like, "Oh, when's he going to get up to the part where he outsmarts the Dane?" Um, but de- the Dane, he put up a good resistance against Tom. But he was too aggressive. But he was too aggressive. I love yeah. that scene when he when the Dane goes to Verna's place. Yeah. And is like ready to kill her. And then Leo's guys turn up. <laughs> do you remember this scene? I do, yeah. And and he kills the two guys, but I love the one that ran behind the door and he shoots through the wall and he's just like... Through the door and the wall. Through the door and the wall and he just waits and then the body just slowly falls. That's such a Coen Brothers thing, you know? Like, yeah. so, so smart. And then the other guy's alive still and he's like, you know, tell me where he is or I'll, I'll kill you. He's like, yeah, but what's my guarantee that if I tell you, you won't kill me? Because if you lie... And I find out about it. I don't get to kill you again. And then he's just like, <laughs> he tells him, he's like, you know what? I believe you. <laughs> just oh. shoots him in the brain. In the brain, I was about in to say. In the brain. And I love that she's gone by then. And he has this whole little speech to himself about like how she's a whore and how he's going to send her to hell. And I kind of like that weird complexity. Like He's a woman hater too. Like He's gay. He's a woman hater. He's got this weird kind of persecution complex thing going on and he's kind of got this religious thing going on or like this kind of I'm going to be old school testament on your ass and send you straight to hell and like all this kind of stuff but it all comes to a head with the Dane when you know he keeps hearing that it's Mink that's involved in all of this and he's like that's my boy he's my boy I can vouch for him but I love that Tom outsmarts him by using that he's using mink's relationship the he's using the wild card of love he's using eddie he's using the dane's heart as a weakness just like bernie bonebaum did to him mm-hmm. isn't that great yeah and um can we talk about the exit of the dane unless there's anything more you want to say about him uh the exit of the dane yes we can talk about that i mean there was the scene that you mentioned before where he took him out to the woods and he's like mm-hmm. took him out mills crossing to find the body and you see uh, it's yeah, actually Mink's body there, and they like. But we see, we see a blew burnt his, body. Yeah. Well, but it's the, that the his head. face was shot so many, like shot so close, it burnt off his face. It's like, geez, I told you to shoot him in the brain, not the face. 
that was a great scene. But yeah, it all comes to a, a thrilling conclusion with uh... where Casper has to decide between the Dane and Tom, right? And there's a big fat dumb wrestler guy, boxer guy who's there, who's the weak link for Tom because Tom went to go talk to him to find out where Bernie Birnbaum is. Because he's staying with Bernie Birnbaum, this guy, and I loved him in this sequence. The, ah, ah, just screaming throughout the whole thing, like, <laughs> horrified. But yes, the Danes there being all like, yo, I actually know the truth, and you're an idiot, and I'm going to murder you. You murdered the Dane, you fucking asshole. I mean, mink. You, you murdered Mink. It was Mink! It's like choking him to death. And I loved uh, Jody Casper sitting next to that flaming fire with the fire poker there. Now, did you expect this to all happen the way it did, Bartek? Because it still takes me by surprise. <laughs> I did expect Casper to pick Tom. Mm. Um, I, I didn't re- I, I didn't realize it would come in in that form. <laughs> and how did it come? Uh, he used I can't remember what they're called, but like the shovel yeah. used in fireplaces to you know pick up ashes or whatever to um. He he made that interact with the Dane's face. Well, it was still red hot. <laughs> in the same way as like a hammer or a baseball bat might. I loved that in a Coen <laughs> Brothers movies, they always have supreme violence most of the time, barring their comedic movies, but even Big Lebowski has some good violence. Uh, but like in this movie, the, the violence is always goofy as well, like in a fun way. Like Like he gets hit in the face. It's always horrific. He gets in the face and you see like oozing goo and blood of his melting yeah. face in the, going through in the, his And gloves. in this dark fire-lit room. He's, a big fireplace, but exactly. yeah, and it's a big room. And his face is melting through his gloves and he just smacks him again. Oh, so good. And then we get the iconic, gotta shoot him in the brain. That's what I teach me, boys. Yeah, he shoots him in the brain, then he says the line. <laughs> Covered in blood. <laughs> that You know what I love about that scene, though? It's goofy. As well, because you have those shots where the camera speeds up on intense close-ups of each one of them reacting to the Dane being alive still. Like, you have the screaming guy, and the camera just goes, like, swoosh, super quick, and he's like, ah, ah. you have that, I find that, I find that funny. That's my dark sensibility, uh, the dark humorous sensibility. Did you find that scene at all humorous, or was it just me? No, it was funny. It was funny. I, I was kind of wondering what what was up with uh, the wrestler guy, but yeah, he was just freaking out. It was just him freaking out. I, I couldn't tell if you shut was... up, you big fat gorilla. I was like, did they lobotomize him or something? No, he beat the fuck out of him. <laughs> yeah, he was also like a big meathead. Yeah, I loved when he went to his place. He grabbed the, the Bernie's hat and put it on him. He's like, he outgrew that hat. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, that's kind of like, uh, Miller's Crossing has a lot of twists and turns and intrigues and the character stuff. And we've tried to talk about like some big plot point moments, but we've got to talk about when he finally gets back to get Johnny Casper to meet Bernie Birnbaum oh, yeah, and he the thinks Barton yeah. Arms Hotel or Barton Arms Complex, which is a reference to Barton Fink. Mm. Um, and he thinks he's meeting Mink. He thinks he's meeting Mink because it's all double crosses and, and John Turturro's thinking he's meeting Gabriel Byrne to, because he phoned him up early to be like, look, I'm going to actually um, take the chance of you telling everyone because there's more for you to lose. Unless you want to come talk to me about it at 4am at my place. <laughs> uh, but before we even get there, Werner comes back because characters disappear in this movie and that's not a criticism. Like it's a, it's a, it's a praising thing because he tells Werner to leave. We don't need Albert Finney throughout the whole movie being an antagonistic force or being a presence. We don't need him. We just need Tom. 
to interact with these people. You know, we need to see the two Italian cousins more than we need Leo in that scene, right? But she comes back because he sent her away. And I love that conversation between them. The, did you kill my brother? And he's like, let me talk to you in a little bit about that. (laughs) And at the end of the movie, you know, she's seeing him for the monster he is about to become. You know, you're, that's you all over, Tom. A big lie with no hearts. What did you think of their final interaction? Oh, that final interaction between them. Like, that's basically the final interaction of them being able to understand and like one another. What did you think? That was the one where they were... Standing in the rain. In the rain, she had the gun, right? Yeah. Yeah, not... Because the the next scene hadn't happened yet, I, I could see on that angle, like, well, he, he didn't kill your brother, so he's not lying at this point. He's not telling her. He's not telling her, yeah. It was an interesting one. Did I guess you... thinking back on it after the film's over, yeah. Yeah, I <laughs> feel so sorry for her as well. But yet she's a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, I, I really just kept thinking that she's more on the oblivious side throughout this whole film. Mm. Like she really doesn't know anything that's going on. Yeah. <laughs> she was just like, yeah, an, an, an inciting force earlier on. That's, and that I was it. I mean, this whole, this whole sequence is actually encapsulated really perfectly by hearing uh, Johnny Casper monologue to a driver about a perfect shave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Something about cold water. You got to put it in cold water because what does metal do? It contracts. Oh, cold water. Cold okay. water. It contracts. I thought it was talking about coal. No, don't put yeah. it in hot water. Put it in cold water because what does metal do? It contracts. And I like the touch that the guy driving does have shaving cuts, like little pieces of paper all over his face. <laughs> so you can understand why he was giving them him this advice. It didn't just come out of nowhere. It wasn't like a typical non sequitur where you start a scene and the guy's like, and that's how I cured cancer. Like it was actually like it wasn't through the, the visuals. <laughs> They actually make it make sense. It wasn't a case of, oh, the boss is going on a random rant again. Yeah, it wasn't like, it actually made sense in the mm. universe, but... um, I, I guess, though, the, and what does it do? That was kind of like a thing of like, oh, the boss's message, it contracts. The thing is, this final big sequence of Johnny Casper's there and Bernie Birnbaum's there and all that, and you hear the shootout. I love that there's a little old lady. He's like, oh, my cat's going to be all right. <laughs> I thought she was going to be your favorite character, man. She was great. Yeah. She would. You would play her. <laughs> you said I'd play Johnny Casper. Yeah. Well, if you didn't get this, so I'd play. Ha- I'd play half the people. Well, in that you could building. be like Albert Finney and play oh, not only Finney Leo drag. but also a woman in the changing room for no fucking apparent reason. Ryan, can I point out something? Did you notice it straight off? <laughs> no, no, no. But can I point out something? Yeah. We've done two episodes on the show. Both have had a character play yeah. a drag role in it. I don't know why that's there, but I love it. I hope um, next week, listener's choice, someone that's picked the drag scene. So, I love this final... This is probably one of my favourite clo- like closing scenes, because the final scene I think of as an epilogue kind of thing, more like this is a conclusion of... Yeah. Because the first scene acts as a prologue, and then you have the hat blowing in the wind. This is kind of like a nice little epilogue. Uh, but like uh, the final scene of him meeting Bernie, and you see that Johnny Casper's dead. How did you feel about that? Did you feel sorry for Johnny? Did you feel sad to see his dead head sticking through the door, sticking through was, the staircase? It was interesting that uh, that the last thing we got of him was just that metal contracts thing. It's like this kind of weird, like, yeah. oh, bosses, you know, giving a speech about metal again or whatever and kind of thing. it just shows how oblivious and he was because he's there to go kill the mink, basically, or go hurt the mink or whatever. And he's still, he's still like, hey, I'm talking about shaving. Like, he doesn't 
take it seriously. Yeah, it just and you don't see the fight. You see no. the aftermath. So yeah, it just gives you this sense of like, man, the the meek. No, uh, Casper was really just played. Yeah. Really I feel strong. So sense. sad for him that he got played yeah. like that, though. Like, because yeah, I did like him. Like, he made yeah. sense. I liked him, but he and he was scum. But you like him as a character. It's it's a film. Yeah. Yeah. And then Bernie's there, and he's he's being the piece of shit that he is. <laughs> but guess who's a bigger piece of shit? Tom. <laughs> I love how he convinces him to give him his gun. <laughs> like, like. Hey. Says, hey, there's nothing between us anyway. Just give me a gun or whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, it was. Also, I know it wasn't the line, but yeah. But no, it was also the logic that he put into it. It wasn't like, hey, there's nothing between us. It was, well, would you want to own the gun that's responsible for the death of Johnny Casper and the Mink and Rug, not Rug Daniels. It was, an, it was just those two. Would you want that on you? Like, I like he, because he knows that Bernie thinks in his own form of twisted logic so he's appealing to that so that when he double crosses him bernie's lost he's like wait what there's no angle here and it's like exactly right but i used an angle to get that gun from you because you wouldn't have given it to me if i didn't use your type of <laughs> angle. i love that i also love that he's picking through the the body of johnny casper he grabs like all of his money and i just love john Turturro. <laughs> he's like yeah, money, huh? Quickly negotiating. Yeah, yeah works with that. He goes, you know, I killed him, so maybe I should get... Okay, you keep it. I mean, that's fair. We're friends. <laughs> <laughs> like, what a slimy piece of shit. So, having not seen this until now, just for first-time viewing, what did you think about when Tom does kill Bernie and does have that exchange with him at the end and where he basically embraces having no heart? Because throughout the movie, people have said he's got a little heart or it's now not there. But this is the moment in which he decides himself, I am going to be heartless. Yeah, even even not knowing, you know, his true... This is us, the audience, not knowing his true self, what his true goal was, his end game. That was, I felt, a very brutal, straightforward moment of honesty, like, uh, just admitting, I don't have a heart. Yeah, what heart? What heart. <sighs> I really, really believed him there. And he shot him in the brain. He it shot was him great. In the brain. Well, Casper was right there. He would have been upset if he didn't. I love that. It's perfect. Now, that's basically the entire movie we've discussed, but here's the thing. There are th some things that people would not like about this movie. We've talked about, like, you found it un hard to understand some plot elements, Yes, While watching I, it, you will, find it's yeah. hard to understand what Tom Reagan's true intentions are, even mm. if you've watched it multiple times. But at the same time, for me at least, on a normal film, or like on certain films, these would be negative critiques. I'm mm. sure down the line, I'll use these exact yeah. things as negative yeah. critiques. But for this, it works. The second point you said about not knowing about Tom Reagan, I wouldn't use that as a critique. Well, the some you would. Some you would go, it's hard to empathize or understand our main character because you don't understand what their driving force truly is, right? Mm. Depending on the movie, yeah. like, I want to know what Tony Stark's driving force is in an Iron Man movie, right? Mm -hmm. But in a, this movie, it works. Yeah, for this movie, I wouldn't use that critique. Yeah. Exactly right. So what about this movie do you think, like... Like about this movie and the star and the Coens and the Coens in general, makes it so that those kind of critiques are null and void. 
What about these types of movies by these people in this movie? Do you think it makes it so that that critique level is, is superfluous? Um, I guess one of the things that I latched onto with Tom, which is why I said he was one of my favorite characters, was the intrigue level. Like, you're mm. asking yourself throughout the film what his purpose is. It's not so much that you're thinking, man, did the screenwriters not consider a purpose for this character? Were they just, mm. you know, writing by the skin of their teeth or bumming exactly. their seat or whatever the phrase is? Yeah. Um, they had that intrigue there going. And like I said, with the plot thing, by the end, you could, like, see the timeline there. Um, I, I guess another thing, and even Roger Ebert mentioned this, was that earlier on in the film, they were throwing out a lot of names for characters mm. you hadn't seen yet. Mm. It's like, every time I heard the word Bernie, I'm like, Bernie, he was he was the one we saw there. Then when John Turturro turned up, I'm like, oh, we haven't seen this guy yet, but they've <laughs> talked about this guy. The Shimano. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I guess, yeah, a lot of the things were saying, like, it... it begs repeat viewing it makes a bit more sense on repeat viewing you notice things more and to an extent i found that a little bit irking as someone who's only seen it once yeah and i could definitely see other people not being as forgiving as me yeah in that regard would you also say that's impactful that aspect of it because you know that the next day after viewing it for the first time you're going to have to come onto a podcast and analyze it when it's a movie that's saying hey watch me more than once on, on a level, when I was watching the film, that was kind of on my mind, like, I have to analyse this. But when I was finished with it, I, I, I took a step back and thought, like, Ryan's definitely seen it a couple of times. Mm. I've definitely only seen it once. That could be a good dynamic. So I wasn't as worried. Yeah, and here's the thing. I was going to make notes while watching this movie, mm -hmm. and I just couldn't because here's the thing. We talk about how analytical this movie is and how deep and metaphorical and all this kind of stuff and Tom and allies and all this... It's a fun movie, though. Like, like mm. I was just having too much fun watching it to sit down and stop myself to write a note about, like, oh, Johnny Casper did this or what, or this thing I'll bring up. Because it's just, it is a fun movie. There's this little social, like, this little post online where it's, like, all these different illustrations of directors as chefs. Mm -hmm. It's, like, Steven Spielberg's giving you a nice cheeseburger, right? And they all have something, right? And I think it's, like, the Coen Brothers ones are giving you, like, uh like, uh, tofu, healthy food, and whatever, and they're just, like, our presentation may be a little weird sometimes, but our food is good for you. Like, I think it's them who has that, and it's, like, yeah. so true. Like, their presentation can be a little weird sometimes, but overall, it's a pleasurable experience, right? Because they're a little yeah. skewed a little bit, right? Like, Big Lebowski is not your typical thing, right? That's a weird yeah. little movie uh, where they're doing their version of The Big Sleep or stuff like that. This movie, for me, I think what makes it stand out in terms of that kind of stuff is I understand a general viewing audience not liking this movie because mm. you have an unlikable central character whose motivations you don't understand. Remove the performance aspect of it. I can see that, right? But the yeah. problem is you do have that performance aspect of it. Gabriel Byrne gives a sensational performance. It's quiet. It's nuanced. It's subdued. It's, it's snarky. Yeah. It's everything. He And here's the thing. I personally think that what makes it stand out is how meticulous it is, this film. You know, watching it, that it isn't that they didn't think about the central characters thing, because they've thought about everything, the Coens. You know, you know that it is there. 
but they're wanting us to have our own versions of our interpretations of what the hat means, what Tom's motivation is, without just saying directly, oh yeah, Tom did it out of loyalty to Leo, because at the end of the day, it's like what I said before about how Bernie has to die. It has to be left ambiguous on a level, because it really wouldn't be satisfying at the end of the movie that you found out, yeah, see, I did it all as one mega play. I'm always ten steps ahead. I'm Tom Reagan, loyal right-hand man of Leo, and I'm going to get back with you at the end of the movie, and my, oh, like, no, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't make the audience feel satisfied, because this movie's been this slow, methodical, fun movie, where, you know, it's allowing the audience to ingratiate itself with these unlikable people who can be likable at the same time. Like, I like Johnny Casper, I like Leo, I like them, I like the Dane, I like all these people, yet, at the same time, I won't know any of them. Well, of course not, yeah. <laughs> of course not. But, um, it's a fantastic movie. Everything, I think, works about it. Cinematography, the music, the, the costumes, the set design. I like how everything's green in this movie. Like, when you're in the warehouse, it's all, like, green walls. you got, like, green in his apartment. Like, everything's green because they're Irish. <laughs> and um, simplicity <laughs> it, of yes, that it sake. Yes, ins- it inspired Thunderpants and Love on a Leash. But it's not pronounced... It's not shouting it at you, like, I'm green! Like, you know, stuff like that. And, like, little things, like the guy with the shaving cuts on his face. So that's why he's talking... It's very nuanced. And I love it. And hopefully, Bartek, it will make you want to check out more of the serious works of the Coen Brothers, more of their dramatic pieces, because this is, I think, a very good introduction to what they can do yeah, well, dramatically. Because think... still, they always still have humour. Yeah. They always still have light airiness, but they're also very grim and serious and mm. stoic. And I think I said it last episode when you said we were doing Miller's Crossing. Like, oh, good, I want to see more Coen Brothers stuff. So, exactly. Yeah. What's the rumpus? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I loved it. Of course, it's... One of my top movies. It's my top Coen Brothers movie. And I think, you know, this film has been overlooked in their catalogue and overlooked in terms of movies. Like you said, it was the same year Goodfellas came out and Godfather Part 3. So you had three big gangster movies that year. And that's just off the top of my head. I didn't even double check if there were any more. So that was a year of gangster flicks. But this one's different to those two. Mm-hmm. As well, like this is still different to those. This doesn't feel like it's ripping off. This just doesn't feel like, oh, the Coen brothers do Godfather, does it? No, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like they had a story to tell. And you know what's refreshing about this? It's not based on anything, it just is its own thing. Isn't that refreshing mm-hmm. now that we live in a time in which every movie is based on a property that already exists? This and the Coen brothers adapt things like you know no country for men's a book and you know they do true grit and remakes and whatever but this is just their own thing mm. and you could tell that they spent a lot of time thinking about it so yeah that's uh miller's crossing is there anything before we wrap up that you want to mention from the movie any highlights or little scenes or little moments or, or, or things that you want to delve into a bit deeper in conversation bartek no, I think we've covered all of it. There was a period there where we hadn't really talked about the Dane, but then we covered the Dane, so... You've got to cover yeah. the Dane. You've got to cover the Dane. you no. got to cover the Spadoinkle. Ah, uh, Spadoinkle. And I think this... I think we did a pretty good job delving into it. Of course, this is a movie with way more stuff that could be talked about that we're just not thinking about off the top of our heads, but it's such a nuanced film. Mm-hmm. It's so layered. And, of course, it's a... Of course, it's a recommendation. And if you haven't already checked out and you listen to this, I still say watch it. It's still great. If you... Love acting and direction and writing and all that. All that kind of stuff. Watch it. And also, just Gabriel Byrne. This movie, you know what I find interesting, too, in the landscape of storytelling now? I think people our age would really appreciate watching this movie. 
mm. now because I mentioned before this feels like it could be a Rockstar game. Yeah. Right? This could be a, like like if they did uh, a, a a prohibition era like sandbox like you know like I've been playing Red Dead Redemption 2 yeah. and I played Red Dead Redemption and I played GTA 5 recently and Tom Reagan feels exactly like a character that would be in those games, and so does Leo, and that kind of stuff. So I feel like people who enjoy yeah, like those G- kind of stories would really benefit from this. And heck, honestly, I know it wouldn't happen, but if they ever did do a Prohibition-era game, they should just do this story and just when? keep Gabriel Byrne and everyone. I know Albert Finney's dead, but like you know what I mean? Like I feel When's um la noir set i, I think the 50s yeah i haven't played that one so i don't know but uh, yeah that one's a bit different to the mm. usual formula because yeah. they're more I, about I know the technology of the game than the story of the game like the yeah. story for me in la noir was the weakest part mm. it's more about like here look can you da- doubt <laughs> like that kind of thing more so than the yeah. story for me but, I, like, I know that from gta 4 was where they started getting a bit more serious a bit less cartoonish that one did have like a darker grimier tone but can't you it, see yourself yeah. playing tom reagan in one of those oh, definitely definitely or at least him being a character in one so that's that mm. so you recommend it i recommend it you yeah. recommend it uh no it sucked okay no it sucked <laughs> all right well um i think i'm going to be a good boy mm-hmm. and plug in right now a nice promotional clip from another podcast who was gracious enough to give us a clip and obviously they should be checked out you should check them out and if you are a podcast that is looking for uh a space to promote your show do email us at spitandpolished at gmail.com that's mm-hmm. spitandpolished at gmail.com get in contact with us and we'll work something out because we want to represent we want to promote smaller like not small pod, not just small po- podcasts but podcasts we like or know or want to know and we want to get to know other podcasts as well and kind yeah. of interact and let our listening people get a chance to hear your show out because you know it's all a community so, here we go. Yep. And if you're wondering why we haven't done this in the past four years, why we're doing it like our fifth year, come on, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Hey, potential fans, listeners, and haters, I'm Giuseppe, a.k.a. Giuseppe the Entertainer, a.k.a. Gnocchi Balboa. And I'm Liam, the host of this train wreck that we call Miscellaneous. That's with an L-A-M-E. Check out our podcast drops weekly for your fix of meme, trash-inspired quiz mayhem, and who knows, you might even learn a thing or two about us, personally. Not anything you could use in your day-to-day life. So, Bartek, yes. I left... Uh, now, we've got a listening people's choice for the next episode. Yes. Have you picked one, or are we going to do that now? Oh, I, it's all locked in, Bartek. Right on. So, oh, that's right. You told me this last so week. So, we're locked in. Listening people's choice. Recommended from my fiance Rachel. Mm-hmm. Uh, she won't be the guest for this one, though. We have a, a guest lined up for next episode who is an aficionado of this stuff, and I really yeah. bite my... F- I really fucking punch myself in the face if they don't turn up next week and I'm like prepping us now like oh aficionado we're going to be doing Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises for next episode okay with our comic book expert Batman fan Sam Noonan mm. who is a person who has been on the podcast seen a few him since times Zoom Zoom uh, yeah exactly so we'll be talking next week in our next episode about Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. Do check that out, and um, if you get the chance, I guess check out the whole trilogy of movies. We'll be mainly focusing on The Dark Knight Rises, but Mm -hmm. since it is an end-of-a-trilogy thing, 
we will be discussing the other two movies in brief. I imagine our guest Sam Noonan will talk about them more so than us. But um, do check out The Dark Knight Rises uh, so you're prepped for next episode. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about that one. It's going to be an interesting... I have strong opinions. Mm-hmm. I don't know what your history with that I, is, but I've we seen can find it. out. I've yeah. seen it once, I've and never, I still have strong opinions. I, I haven't seen Batman Begins. I was sleepy through the Dark Knight, and I saw <laughs> Dark Knight Rises in cinema. I can't wait for Sam to be told that to his face. He'll be like, what? I texted him saying I've only seen the Dark Knight Rises once, and he's like, what? I've seen it several times. So... That'll be the next episode. Looking forward to it. Um, you can find us on the social medias of Facebook and Twitter. Look for Spit and Polish Presents. You can find us easy or look in the description of this episode and we have the links there. Same with the podcast that's been promoted for this episode. Look them up. As I mentioned before, we have an email, spitandpolished at gmail. Give us a, you know, feedback or comments on stuff we've talked about. Or, you know, movie suggestions for the future because we want to have... They're on the list. We have integ- we want to integrate more of uh, listening people's suggestions because this is way more open, this mm-hmm. show, for us yes. to cover a every, wide range of movies. Every three episodes is a listener's choice one. So if you email us, you could be the, the film picked in episode six or nine or 12 or 15 exactly or 18 right. or 21 or 24 or 27, maybe even 30. Exactly right. So, thank you very much, listening people, for being so wonderful and gorgeous and sexy. You can find us, of course, on all the podcast platforming sites available around uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that. If you could give us a rating and review on any of those, or recommend us to your friends, family, or enemies, that would be very much appreciated. Or unappreciated? Mm, no, we're done with that. Masterpiece? <laughs> <laughs> this, so, was this an unappreciated masterpiece, Ryan? Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, definitely, because it, this is more appreciated for people who know film. Mm-hmm. Right, like like people who know their films will yeah. like this movie. Oh, I didn't tell you this. I I, I ended on this. Sure. Our guest for next episode is a friend of ours, Sam Noonan. He's a big film expert. He studied film, loves film. And I was like, oh, you love film. Have you checked out Miller's Crossing? And he goes, no, I've never heard of it before. So for his birthday, I gave him on DVD Miller's Crossing. Oh, cool. He didn't watch it for several years. I always kept bugging him. And then he watched it, apparently, one night on a TV that sound doesn't work properly or very much at all while drunk out of his mind. And then he berated me for it not being funny. And I was like, well, I did tell you it was a Coen Brothers movie, so what did you expect? And yes, it is actually funny. And if you did watch it sober and watch it knowing that you're going to be watching a film with a lot of nuances, and he's never watched it again since. So I'm going to be berating him next week about that. So um, look forward to that. Until next time, listening people, remember... What's the rumpus? <laughs>